Hey, I'm Asher. And I'm Jackson. And what you're about to listen to is Strictly Confidential. Jepsen deserves a sword. Now they're all warmed up. What's your favorite spooky time movie, Jackson? It's October. I don't think I used to have a very specific favorite spooky time movie, but recently I watched The Burbs, and I think it was one night when I was hanging out with my wife and sister-in-law, and we were deciding what movie to watch, and so we got on all the different streaming platforms, and we saw Tom Hanks is in a scary movie in 1989 that is an hour and 42 minutes, which, as we know, is probably the perfect time for a movie like this, and it's called The Burbs. It is the... (laughs) I think you're probably inventing that second B. No, Burbs, like B-U-R-B-S. Oh, I thought you were talking about Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds and you were being a funny meme man about it. Yeah, Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds that came out in 1989 and stars Tom Hanks. I don't know. Maybe there was a remake. <laughs> no, this I haven't is, seen that movie either, okay? This is The Suburbs, but they take off SU and put an apostrophe in its place and call oh. the movie The Birds. Man, I've listened to enough 90s grunge songs to know that. The characters in this movie are the perfect characters. They're, hmm. So it's all this whole like group of families living in these suburbs, in this one street where everybody knows each other and his friends. And Tom Hanks' character is off work for just like vacation, but has decided he's going to spend that time hanging out in his house alone. And he find and he thinks that his next door neighbors are like haunted witches. So he's crazy or is there like a lot of strange activity going on in reality? There's a lot of strange activity going on in reality, but it's I don't want to spoil too much of it because it's genuinely well worth watching. I think it's an absolute delight. And it's like the crew, not the crew, but like the team of people who are all friends who are working on figuring out what's going on in this weird house where these new people moved in is like one like 17 year old skateboard boy whose family (laughs) lives on the street. Tom Mm. Hanks. Tom Hanks' neighbor, who's, like, this big, like, high-pitched football guy who, like, loves sports and loves investigating stuff. And then this old guy who, if you look up the Burbs, you can find this photo. And I would recommend everybody Google image searching the Burbs, but I'm sending you the photo now. This guy in this, this old guy who's, like, he's been... Oh, man. That's a look. I think he spends most of the movie with shaving cream on half of his face wearing camo (laughs) underwear and like a camo robe thing or leopard print robe thing. And it's just, it's, it's a perfect film. This is the most watchable thing I can think of. Right? But, but this is a spooky time movie. This just looks like a comedy. So we didn't say it has to be a spooky time movie. It is technically according Uh, to- Okay, I did say that it has to be a spooky time movie, but okay, I am glad that I learned about this film. We also, beforehand, we definitely talked and said it could just be a Halloween holiday movie. And this is definitely a Halloween holiday movie. It's a comedy thriller film. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, okay. If it's it's around Halloween, I'll allow it. I guess that Nightmare Before Christmas isn't a terrifying film, but you'd be crazy to not call it a Halloween film. Right. I'm going to have to go with my maybe all-time, second all-time favorite movie, The Thing by John Carpenter. Always looking for an excuse to rewatch it. Spooky Time is a perfect time because this is an actual horror movie, but it's also the horror movie that taught me that I just, I like the goop. 
I like the gore, I think, because I'm a baby. I'm an infant. I'm a thumb-sucking baby when it comes to jump scares. You probably know this about me. This is why I can't do a lot of modern horror movies because they're 90% that. But I think I really like 80s horror movies because I love the goop. And the thing has plenty of that. They're doing like an autopsy scene and the doctor is really getting up in there and it's just making these schlorp sounds and it's just, the it's so disgusting that it comes full circle and it's extremely satisfying. And to me, that's worth the watch alone. Then there's also, you know, masterful storytelling and cinematography and pacing and visual effects and characters, but you know, it's for the goop. Yeah, I completely get that. I love the goop. That's one of the reasons. So give context. I watched Evil Dead 2 for the first time last night and Evil Dead 2 has a decent amount of goop. Yeah, that's like an 8 out of 10. There's the a, thing is a 10 out of 10. I watched uh, America, or, uh, Army of Darkness yesterday as well. And there is a scene in Army of Darkness that has, I think, the most goop out of anything I've ever seen. <laughs> um, and I think one thing that I didn't realize was going to be something that was so prevalent in those movies was kind of like, you know, the scene in The Shining probably about halfway through where he sees the elevator and it's just flooding blood. Yes. Iconic. Iconic scene. I didn't realize that Evil Dead 2 does that, but they just basically have a guy with a hose spraying blood at Bruce Campbell. (laughs) But yeah, so I uh, had a lot of fun watching those and I'm enjoying the season. Yeah, well, here in the 2018th year of our Lord, we have to see movies to get those chills and thrills and spills. But if you're living in the 1800s and you're living in London, you can just step outside and get a scare. Things were very different back then. We're going to be talking about the Victorian era, the very earliest era of the Victorian era in London, specifically a area called Hammersmith. What's interesting about Hammersmith? Probably plenty of things, but I want to talk about... A ghost! The Hammersmith Ghost. The tragic tale. It's a short tale, but there is murder. There is hysteria. There is a court case that practically takes 100 years. There is improvised police. There's a lot going on. Sounds like my perfect kind of tragic tale. I'm excited to sit back and enjoy the story. Yeah, you are. This is where you're supposed to say, Whoa, Asher, tell me more. Whoa. Ruh-roh. That's we, what I'm looking for. So we haven't really talked about ghosts. Can we can we briefly, show. briefly, I think, have we talked about Monster in Mexico before? Yes. Okay. Well, then I'm, I'm satisfied. Go on. Well, we haven't really touched on the specter side of the paranormal. It's kind of hard to make this into a conspiracy in the most literal sense. We'll just say uh, ghosts are real and the government is covering it up because I really want to talk about the Hammersmith ghost. 1803, setting the scene. It's a damp, cold winter in London. There were disturbing reports that started cropping up out of nowhere. They were sudden, but they were many of a sinister ghost that was haunting a graveyard in Hammersmith. Locals talked about a figure that was dressed in white with horns and a glass eye. They said that a specter would emerge from the shadows. He would moan and wail and writhe in front of passersby. That's all very scary, but it's not really something to take action on. Or how can I phrase that better? It's It's not big enough yet. In that time, every other town had a ghost. Yeah, exactly. Right. So At least a ghost. And seeing one guy screaming and, like, in pain. Cool. Cool. Show me something new. Show me something interesting. I've seen ghosts like this. Haunt me right. better. It wasn't a super rare occurrence in the early 1800s, but this is a little different when the ghost started physically attacking people. 
Oh, wow. A pregnant woman reported to be physically attacked as she walked by the churchyard. Another appearance caused a wagon driver to abandon his horse and his passengers. He just dipped. He left them there. He left them there. A brewer's servant, Thomas Groom, he testified that while walking through the churchyard with a companion one night, this is close to 9 p.m., something rose from behind a tombstone and seized him by the throat. So this is, it seems like a lot of the reports about this ghost, the preferred method of attacking is grabbing people by the throat and throttling them. So this is when it really becomes a concern of the public's well-being. That's crazy. Thomas Groom, in his account, said that after the ghost appeared, he, quote, I gotta, hold up, I gotta work. He, quote, gave me a twist around. I saw nothing. I gave him a bit of a push out with my fist and felt something soft, like a greatcoat. <laughs> he gave him a bit of a push out with his fist. That's what I told my mom the last time I gave my little sister a black eye. It's like, I didn't hit her. I just gave her a little bit of a push out with my fist. Haha, <laughs> what a great joke, and a great episode. Hi, Future Asher here, editing this episode of Strictly Confidential, while Jackson relaxes in a plastic lounge chair in Utah. Did want to step in here and clarify that I have never once hit my sister. And if I had, she would have defeated me swiftly with grace and poise. What? I don't understand the phrasing there. Just It's a, it's a <laughs> ghost. You were allowed to punch it hard. If you're being throttled by a phantom, why are you trying to act like you're being... Uh, I wouldn't... I would never attack a ghost. I'm a proper gentleman. I just... I just want to make sure he doesn't press charges. <laughs> I know! Well, this occurrence was one of many. There were accounts even of people being so scared by this ghost that they died of fright. That I'm not quite so on board with, but we do know that there were late night attacks and the public was concerned. So this is really important to remember. It's easy to just see people as being extremely superstitious, especially in the Victorian era. I want you to, to uh, here's a game that everyone listening at home can play along with. When I just bring up the concept of seeing a ghost, what's the image that comes to your head immediately? Don't overthink it. Just what do you envision a ghost to be? Luigi. Luigi. Okay. Luigi's Mansion fan. Uh, I am looking for a description of the ghost, not the ghost hunter. Maybe do think about it a little bit. Don't overthink it, but put some thought. I mean, we're thinking of like a floating sheet, right? So it's floating. It's kind of, again, we're going back to the goop. Thanks to Ghostbusters. Uh, it's a Photoshop layer that's been set to 40% opacity. He's see-through, very ephemeral, very otherworldly. People this time had a really different concept of what a ghost was. And this is really important to the story and to defending why people were so scared. Because we now have ghost tours where you get to sip on beer and have someone spin a yarn and ride in a uh, hopefully comfy bus. But ghosts back then were way less ephemeral and way less abstract. So we now kind of have this concept of multiple dimensions and we have our dimension and then there's my, maybe the afterlife, but then there's a fourth dimension or these ghosts like exist between realms. But that concept is kind of new. That didn't exist in the early 1800s. It was much more, they're either here or they're in heaven and they've passed on. So ghosts were way more physical than what we imagine them to be now. They were invisible, but they were very much a part of our dimension. So they were capable of physical violence. Where did they come from then? 
Are they also dead things, just fewer, or like, so what's the context for them? Like, The context is really important because you have to remember, this is when the, we talked about recently the idea of life expectancy and the higher rate of child infant mortality and disease, but also the very, very close proximity of London at this time. People were way more surrounded by death than we are. And I think I have to be, go to bat for these people because it's so easy to just write them off as stupid. The fact that ghost stories become mass hysteria so easily. They are surrounded by graveyards and the concept of death and they are surrounded by darkness in a way that we can't really understand. And I feel like that's the breeding ground for superstition and fear. But also, ghosts were people that the living knew. They weren't just like these ideas. They weren't, like I said, they weren't so conceptual. A ghost in the 1800s was your uncle who died recently of some, of an unknown illness. And then late one night, you see a person in the distance who looks like your uncle and you think he hasn't moved on. He's still haunting the, he's still haunting the earth. Which is, I think that trope is really constantly used in horror movies today too. Yeah, certainly. The the idea of a lingering spirit is definitely still around, and it existed in a very similar way back then. But what I'm saying is, like, the idea that it is connected to you, perhaps even familial, is super commonly used because I think it's a psychological thing where I, if you're showing me a horror movie where the mother is killing the son, I'm going to be way more terrified than a random woman killing a boy. One spectacular example of this is uh, Hereditary, which I think is one of the best movies of the year. Uh, Don't watch if you're not uh, wearing a diaper, probably. We'll not be watching it ever. It's uh, it's really well done, and it's all about that kind of familial uh, fear. Well, a big part of why you imagine the the floating sheet is that the white sheet thing is kind of what made a ghost a ghost back then. Again, they weren't these transparent, faceless, ephemeral beings. They were essentially living, thinking human beings, but they were invisible. Their soul just hadn't passed on to heaven. So the way that ghosts made their presence known was they had to cover themselves in a shroud, usually draping themselves in a white sheet. So lots and lots of illustrations for what was essentially tabloids in the 1800s, these serials that printed articles about the supernatural. The illustrations were always just regular people wearing white sheets. And that's what a ghost was. Just logistically, was everybody given the opportunity to be a ghost after Hmm, they die? Interesting. It would be something very easy to fake. And that's part of why it became such... I I think that's the perfect storm, is that you have people surrounded by death and darkness, and then you have this belief in a being that has to cover itself in a white sheet. But that's an... Everyone has sheets at home, and they're all extremely bored because it's the 1800s. It's pretty easy to fake this sort of incident. Yeah, so I'm not... That's not even what I was saying, but I do think it is, like... It's a very convenient way to be a ghost is to, hey, uh, I am dead now and uh, there is a sheet covering me. So you can't tell that it's actually just me alive. But no, I what I'm saying is more like, does that mean that every person who dies before they get uh, sorted into whatever category they have in the afterlife, there's this purgatory period where they're offered, hey, you want to be a ghost for a couple of weeks? See, that's kind of, yeah, I see what you're saying. There's still this idea that you have lingering regrets and those 
those are the folks who remain. I don't think it's so much that you choose whether or not you hang out, but if you have unfinished business, your soul just kind of lingers around. Like you haven't allowed yourself to pass on. See, that's the weird thing that I like to think about. That's what if I die and I really, really don't want to be a ghost, but for some reason, the powers that be decides, you know what? He's got to be a ghost for the next decade or so. Like I'm imagining oh, then people, you got a chore. I'm, I'm imagining people dying with like their fingers crossed and like a burglar is about to shoot them or something. They've got their fingers crossed like, don't be a ghost. Don't be a ghost. Don't be a ghost. <laughs> and that's why this ghost is popping out and throttling people. He's pissed. He's, He's like, mad as I, hell. You think I want to be a sheet for a decade? I had plans. I'm trying to get into Purgatorio over here and I have to hang out in a damp graveyard and I'm mad as hell. You think that how I wanted to spend my eternity was watching over your dumbass? <laughs> so if there has to be a lingering regret to make a ghost, who is this phantom that is literally attacking people in Hammersmith? Locals had a theory, because just in the previous year, 1802, a now unfortunately unnamed man had committed suicide by cutting his throat. He had been buried in the Hammersmith churchyard. This is the churchyard where people are being attacked and seeing this phantom. Ooh. People at the time believed that suicide victims should not be buried on consecrated ground because their souls would never be at rest. Don't know why that's the case, but apparently that's a no-no. Well, I mean, suicide's always got a stigma, which I think I kind of, like, I understand maybe their souls aren't at rest. Why can they not be buried in places where souls are at rest? Thankfully, it's a it's a better view on suicide than the Catholic Church, but it still makes no sense. Like, where are you going to put them where it's okay for them to be at rest? I don't know why they can't just be grouped in with everybody else. Speaking of the Catholic Church, do you want a random brief fun fact? It better be fun and not depressing. Okay, well, uh, I was looking at the Skitty Cities and Skylines subreddit because there is a uh, subreddit for the video game Cities and Skylines. Uh, it turns out the subreddit for Cities and Skylines has almost four times as many subscribers as the subreddit for Catholicism. <laughs> I don't know what you'd be doing on the Catholic Reddit anyway, but that is pretty funny. Yeah, well, uh, back to our regular scheduled programming. So people already conditioned that the mistake had been made, and this was the perfect opportunity to make a ghost and then suddenly starts seeing a ghost and word travels quick whether or not these were all exaggerated or not it was really seen as a concern for the public's well-being it was a threat this is the perfect thing to report to the police except at this time in london there was no organized police force there wasn't really anyone to report to about these attacks I don't see that working super well. Enforcement of the law was mostly just volunteers. You had the night watch, you had the constable, but it was mostly policemen were just citizens policing themselves. And when this became a big enough issue that everyone was concerned, the constable organized a ragtag group of excise police officers. Basically, that just means that you are volunteer police officers. These are just civilians. These are just citizens that were given weapons and told, go find the ghost. I think today no, we would call that a militia. Yeah, it's a militia. But that was also the norm at the time, was that when someone needed to be found or taken out, you would just gather up a group of people who you believe to have good character, gave them a weapon, and said, go at it. 
definitely not an organized force by any means and also not trained by any means. So you have this group of people who have no police training, weapons, and presumably not a lot of training with these weapons, and a legitimate, real belief that ghosts exist and are haunting the innocent civilians in Hammersmith. This is already, this is already setting up trouble, as you can probably guess. Yeah, they don't have a good way to handle this situation. 10.30 p.m. at the corner of Beaver Lane while making his rounds. Girdler, who was the constable and heading up this ragtag police force, he met one of the armed citizens that was patrolling the area. This is the 29-year-old excise officer Francis Smith. He's armed with a shotgun, and Smith told Girdler he was going to go look for this supposed ghost. Girdler agreed that he would join Smith after he called the hour at 11 p.m. and that they would take the ghost if possible. Whatever that means, then they went their separate ways. So just 30 minutes pass, and Smith has a fateful encounter with Thomas Millwood. Thomas Millwood, he was a local, 29-year-old as well. He was a Hammersmith resident who made an honest living as a bricklayer. He was heading home from a visit to his parents' house and just stepped out into the night. There were a lot of bricklayers in London at this time. So to distinguish themselves as a group and, ironically, to make themselves more visible, bricklayers at this time had a uniform, a white apron, linen pants, always white, and often a white hat. You may already see where I'm going with this. Yeah. You have you have Smith who has no right to be holding a shotgun. He's out there in the middle of the night. It's dark. There's at best dim lanterns to light the path. He's shaking in his boots because he's thinking that at any moment he's going to be attacked by a ghost. Not just spooked, but the ghost may th- jump and throttle him by the throat. And then you have poor Thomas Millwood who steps out into the middle of the night dressed completely in white. According to Anne Millwood, that's his sister, whom he was visiting, immediately after seeing her brother off, she heard a voice in the distance yell, Damn you! What are you? Who are you? Damn you, I'll shoot you! This, of course, was the voice of Smith, who had encountered Millwood and thought him to be a ghost. Wow. Only seconds passed, and a shotgun blast rings out. The ghost doesn't turn into powder. He doesn't fade away. He drops to the ground. Smith really quickly realizes that he has shot a man, not a ghost, as he thought. So there's no mystery here. There were several witnesses. Smith has a shotgun, sees Thomas Millwood, thinks he's a ghost, shoots him in the lower left jaw, and, I guess, thankfully, dies instantly and drops to the ground. Immediately realizes his mistake to his horror. First of all, I think uh, if you're going to get hit in the jaw with a shotgun, you're going to die. Yeah, he never Uh, had a chance. Is this the end of the story? Like, is this kind of like the Mothman thing where something bigger happened and everybody forgot about Mothman? And so they just forgot about the fact that they were thought they were haunted by an actual ghost? To me, the reason that this story is so significant is the legal implications and the real world ramifications of this encounter. So Smith was tried for willful murder. Side note, the deceased wife, Miss uh, Fulbrook, this is Millwood's wife. She stated that he warned him to cover his white clothing with a great coat, which is like their big overcoats because it's wet and cold. Because he had already been mistaken for a ghost on a previous occasion. Again, this is really common. People are so, on the lookout for ghosts and they're seeing them everywhere. Fool me once, shame on you. 
Fool me twice, should have been wearing a great coat. Exactly. Of course, we're not going to blame uh, Millwood for wearing his uniform, but it's just a perfect storm of paranoia and the wrong place at the wrong time and mistaken beliefs. Lord Chief Baron, this is the guy who's basically deciding Smith's fate at, during his trial for murder. He observed that Smith had neither acted out of self-defense nor shot Millwood by accident. He had not been provoked, and he had no. He did not attempt to apprehend the supposed apparition. He just shot him. He didn't try to capture the ghost, probably because he believed that ghosts couldn't be captured at all. I mean, if you're trying to get into this guy's head, think of something that's for to us. We ha- like with TV and everything, we've seen ghosts and stuff for a long time. Think of something genuinely very scary. If you walked outside and a 20 foot tall predator from the Predator series was standing there, your instinct wouldn't be, excuse me, you're under arrest. If you had a shotgun in your hand, you would try and shoot it in the face, right? Sure. I mean, this actually parallels pretty well to the the clowns that started popping up a few years back, where people were dressing as clowns and spooking people. But when clowns started getting attacked... No one blamed the attackers. It was like, well, you were dressed up like a clown and you spooked them. So, of course, you're going to get hurt. In this case, Millwood wasn't actually trying to scare anyone. He was just wearing his normal bricklayer uniform. But he did scare someone. And Smith at the time really, truly believed that his life was in danger. But Millwood had not actually committed any offense to justify being shot, and even if the supposed ghost had been shot, it wouldn't have been acceptable because frightening people while pretending to be a ghost was not a serious felony, but at most a misdemeanor meriting a small fine. Wait, 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 wait. So they didn't believe the ghost was real? They believed... Oh, no, I see see what you're saying. Millwood, if he was faking being a ghost, would not be a felon. Right. Okay, I'm tracking, yeah. So the judge closed his remarks by reminding the jury that the accused good character didn't mean anything in this case. So he directed the jury to find the accused guilty of murder if they believe the facts presented by the witness. After considering for about an hour, the jury returned with a verdict of manslaughter, which to me, that makes the most sense. But the judge informed the jury that the court could not receive such a verdict and that they must either find Smith guilty of murder or acquit him entirely. That Smith believed Millwood was a ghost at the time was irrelevant to the case. The the jury returned with a verdict of guilty because if you have to choose between guilty or not guilty, he did kill a man. They gave him the guilty of murder conviction. At the time, though, the customary sentence for that was death. Death by hanging and then donation to science and dissection. So my question for you and the listeners at home is, does Smith deserve to die? That's a tough question, and it's a question that actually is why this is still relevant, because it's still being figured out to this day. And there were court cases a hundred years later that are revisiting this concept. Because Smith, he truly believed he was in danger, and would never have killed Millwood had he known that he wasn't a ghost. So it really just boils down to if you think that a person's beliefs can excuse their actions, even mistaken beliefs, even dumb beliefs like him being a ghost. This is super timely, too, because of the what happened in Dallas a couple weeks ago. Go ahead and recap that for the listeners and myself. So in Dallas a couple weeks ago, a police officer was coming home to their apartment complex, and they came into the wrong apartment and thought that it was their apartment, but somebody else was sitting on the couch, and so they shot and killed them. Jesus, I did not hear this. Yeah, and so the whole thing was... There's no, like, this guy was sitting in his own apartment doing nothing, and the only reason he was shot and killed was because he was, uh, the person who walked in was scared. Hmm. Yeah, this is a very similar situation. It's true. 
My first instinct would be to say, I don't think he deserves uh, a punishment this severe. I don't know how I feel about capital punishment in general, but thinking about it in modern times about what, like, Millwood had no, no fault in this. No, None. he was 100% innocent. He was leaving his parents' home. He had just got done volunteering his time at the puppy orphanage. He had just donated to the church. The most innocent guy you could possibly be. He just steps outside, heading back home and late one night, dressed in white, and that's what caused his death. Yeah, I I genuinely think that I don't know if I don't know if he should die, but I think he deserves a severe punishment, like life in prison or something. I don't even know if he deserves that. It's just a really I view it as just an extremely unfortunate circumstance. I see it more as the manslaughter conviction. And thankfully so did the king because the power to commute a sentence or if someone's going to actually be executed, they need to bring it to the highest authority first because they still treated it as a big deal. But by royal pardon, the sentence was changed to just a year's hard labor. Thankfully, Smith lived, and I think that's correct. I think that is definitely the happy ending to this story, if you can call it that. If you put that in a modern context, do you think that the police officer deserves just a year in prison for shooting somebody in their own apartment and killing them in their own apartment? Ooh, I guess not. So a year's hard labor doesn't seem severe enough. These are two extremes, and we're not getting we're not getting what feels like a just punishment for a terrible action. I think yes, it's definitely an accident. I think we need to consider that. I think, and I've thought about this quite a bit since I've heard about this Dallas thing a couple weeks ago. I think it's. It's deserving of at least like 20, 40, 20, 30 years in prison. Hmm. You ended a person's life who was completely innocent. And yes, it was an accident, but that's not the kind of thing you can come away from and just be, well, I, I got to do a year of work. Of course, this police officer that we're talking about in Dallas was trained to handle a weapon. And in this case, Smith was given a gun and given the authority to fire upon a ghost by the constable because he, I don't even know that if he, that he wanted this duty. It was his civic duty to protect his fellow citizens because there wasn't a police officer to handle this situation. Yeah, I almost so feel as, uh, this, this situation feels thrust upon Smith, if you ask me. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely see the, the difference difference in the analogy there. I do think I do think Smith is in a much different situation because the police officer is just going home. Whereas Smith is on edge and this is a thing that he has been tasked with doing. And so a mistake here makes much more sense. And whether or not this whole this whole situation is so strange, but also leaves such open-ended questions about intentionality and like how how much your beliefs can justify or excuse your actions. But the story doesn't end there. Because it's said that the Black Lion Pub is haunted to this day by the spirit of Thomas Millwood. That's where they took his body right after he was shot. He likes to whisper to the patrons. He whispers their names into their ears, taps them on the shoulders, makes loud bangings and footsteps. One owner believed he had felt Thomas Millwood walk right through him one evening, a cold breeze chilling him all the way to his bones. So he may have been mistaken for a ghost, but in the process, he may have become one. Huh. That's a wild theory. And that's the tragic tale of Thomas Millwood and the Hammersmith ghost. Do you want to hear a tweet of the week about this very topic? I sure do. This tweet comes from Twitter user at Frovo, F-R-O underscore V-O. And they tweet, the ancient ghost is actually a little ghost waving to you. <laughs> Hiding in plain sight. I love it. 
You've had enough fun in this village. Do you want to do some uh, traveling with me? Let's hit the road, man. Do you want to hop on my tandem bike and explore the abscess of my brain? As long as the back of the bike has a bell, I'll be happy. Every part of the bike is a bell. It's just one big old bell bike. That's the well, stuff. Uh, so to preface this, I wanted to say that one of the reasons I love the idea for this show and love doing this show is because like many of the people in the world and probably many of our listeners and hopefully you, my friendly co-host, is that many of us lay awake at night and think of what if this is fake or what if this is like this or what if this is this? Right? Yeah. I just wanted to give you give you guys a little thinker. We don't have a name for this segment yet, but I'm sure we will eventually. So this is Jackson Inspires Existential Terror. That's the name of this segment. This is Jackson and Asher ride a tandem bike through the world of existential terror. So what I want to talk about today is colors. And I realize that that's kind of a wild thing to talk about in an audio format, but bear with me for a minute. I've been thinking about this just idea for months. And if anybody has any sources to read on it, I'd love to do that. I haven't done any research at all. More than months, probably years. But the idea that, like, we're looking at a Google Drive document right now, right? Sure. And in the top right corner, there's a blue button that says share. Yes. When I'm looking at that, I see blue, right? You see blue as well, right? I do. How do I know that the blue I'm looking at is even close to the blue you're looking at? Ah, yes. I've heard this before. The idea of color being relative to each person. And I have no idea how you would prove this or how you would fix this, but it's mind-blowing to me that I look at this blue and I know that it's blue and you know that it's blue. Every one of us could be seeing a completely different color because we were all taught this color that we're seeing was blue. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And color is already really relative, right? Some people are actually colorblind in the red-green space and have a hard time distinguishing those colors. So we know for a fact that they're perceiving color differently. And and all animals see it differently, too. Like, there's some kind of, I think it's a, a kind of shrimp that has twice as many cones in their eyes as we do. So they can see, I think it might be four times as many colors or something. And so it's, it's buck wild to me to think that I see this blue share button right here and think... Yeah, I know for sure that that's blue. And if I had a shrimp sitting next to me, the shrimp could think, oh no, that's an array of different colors. Yeah, so your red could be what my blue looks like, and but we would both still be in agreement that the blue is blue because we both call it the same thing. I love the color red, and my wife loves the color blue. What if we oh, but love you guys the like the color? same color? Holy shit! I didn't even thought about it from that angle. What if everyone's favorite color is the exact same color? Yeah, like all everybody's just mentality towards color is the exact same. But I, like, you love orange, right? Yeah, it's my fave. I don't love orange. But what if I do love orange? Yeah, this whole time you have been loving orange, but you've been calling it blue. So yeah, that's that's all I got. I just wanted to tandem bike you through this thinker. That's great. As an artist, I might have a defense that we're all seeing the same colors, though. Why? Because if you see colors on the individual basis, there's it's it's tough to get a comparison because it's it's an abstraction of light that's happening in our eyes. But there are contrasting and complementary colors. And this, I guess, I guess is relative too, but we kind of have this idea that red looks good with blue and blue looks good with yellow. And you have these color palettes that are developed by simultaneous contrast. But yeah. I, but, but that's, but you know what? That yeah, still I works. Your if, you, if, if you just rotate the whole color wheel, that still works because you're still getting that contrast. Blue and orange are complementary, right? Yes. And so are red and, uh, what's complementary to red? Green. So really? I don't think yeah. that's true. I, it is. Really? Yeah. 
That's wild. Well, so, but like blue and orange are complementary and red and green are complementary. But if my blue was your red and my orange was your green. Oh my God. It would still work. Real talk, real talk. That color wheel thing is how I completely disproven this in my mind. And now that you've taken that away, <laughs> I'm back in it. Well, I, uh, I don't want to talk about this anymore because I don't want to try and figure out an actual solution. I just want this thought to be in people's minds. So I think it's time that we wrap up our black, white, and orange podcast, Strictly Confidential, and tell people that they need to listen to Glenn Merle. He wrote our theme song. It's called Threadbare. It's off the album Burner Proof. It's very good. Check it out at glenmerlemusic.com and Spotify and iTunes, anywhere else you get music. Yeah. And uh, if you want to follow us on any of our social media, we're pretty uh, active on there. And it's a good way to get a notification on what the next show is. We're trying to make fun artwork. We're both designers, so it should be a lot of fun. Our Instagram is Strictly Confidential. Confidential show. Our Twitter is because Jack Dorsey refuses to give me more characters. It is S Confident Show. And our email is strictly confidential show at gmail.com. So if you want to send us anything, send it uh, to some one of those sources. If you have a theory you want to share, or if you want to talk with us about that theory and be on an interview, we'd love to have you on the show. Let us know. And if you like this podcast, share it with your best friend. They also need things to do when they're driving all the way to Tulsa, Oklahoma. So tell them about it. Yeah. Uh, My sister-in-law has been telling all of her friends about it, and we're getting more and more listeners because of that. So that's the best way you can do it. Just That's all we can ask is just for you to tell your friend. Maybe if you want to leave a review, leave a review. But honestly, we just want more people to enjoy it. Yeah, advertisers know that you can spend billions and billions on creating a multi-layer advertising campaign, but word of mouth is still the best way to spread the word. So that is very appreciated. Yeah. Yup, yup, yup. Well, this marks the end of our broadcast. I have been Asher. And I'm Jackson. You've been listening to Strictly Confidential. And since it's October and September and the month without coffee is over for me, I'm going to remind everyone out there, stay caffeinated. Stay caffeinated.